Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Don't be rattled, just be rock solid. That's the theme of our passage today in the book of 1 John, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, I'm happy to tell you that my book, Calm Your Anxiety, is available for purchase wherever you buy your books. As someone who has battled anxiety all of my life, I know the power of Scripture in helping us calm down and to look up. My publisher, HarperCollins Christian Publishers, is actually releasing two different volumes. The first is a 208-page paperback entitled Calm Your Anxiety, Winning the Fight Against Worry. The companion volume is called Calm Your Anxiety, 60 Biblical Quotes for Better Mental Health. And this is a smaller 144-page book that would be perfect to give to somebody else or for your own devotional use. So check out both books now, available anywhere and everywhere that you get your books. Now, let's go on to studying this little epistle of 1 John. My friend David Burt told me of a time when he was overwhelmed with feelings of inadequacy, of not being good enough for what he wanted to do. But he came across Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and he started singing it. He came to the second verse. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. The phrase Lord Sabaoth means the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies of heaven. And David told me, that verse hit me hard. And suddenly the phrase Lord Sabaoth became my favorite name for our Lord. I was struck by its totality, its weight and power and mystery, and I received complete peace. He said, I sang that verse over and over, and he found reassurance. There is a great power in our hymns and spiritual songs, which is why Martin Luther, who wrote A Mighty Fortress, championed the singing of both old and new music during the Reformation. At that time, there was little or no singing being done by congregations and churches, but Luther knew that his Reformation message would spread more quickly through music than in any other way, so he wrote new hymns, and he encouraged other German musicians to do the same. But he also went back to older Latin hymns and translated them into German so that the church could sing songs both old and new. Well, the Apostle John also knew that his congregations needed music, and he wrote a song for them to sing. I believe the passage where it's coming to is a song because it has all the earmarks of that. It is poetic and lyrical, 
And John surely knew what every pastor knows, that music is critical for Christian education and maturity. These three verses we're coming to have repetition and rhythmic flow. They're poetical. They're musical. They have parallelism in them. So let's read John's simple little song recorded for us in 1 John 2, verses 12, 13, and 14. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, let's deal with some background issues. First, John wrote this epistle because of a crisis that had arisen in the churches over which he was the overseer. He had finally written his gospel, and many of the Greek or Hellenistic thinkers in the churches simply could not accept his literal view of Christ being God who came incarnate as a man to die and rise again and to serve as the Messiah. So they were leaving the churches and were upsetting those who remained. John wrote this letter to, do, to reassure those who had stayed behind but were rattled. And his basic message was, they, the deserters, they are wrong and we are right. They have the spirit of the Antichrist, but we have an anointing from the true Christ. They are of the devil. We are of the Lord. So don't be intimidated. Don't be rattled. Just be right. Just be resolute. Just be reassured. Just be rock solid. And that's the theme of this book. And that's why we go to 1 John to find strengthening reassurance about our solidarity, our vitality, our solidity in Christ. Now, there's a second preliminary issue. Why did John single out these three age groups, children, young men, older people? Some people believe this was John's way of addressing three different levels of people here in terms of their maturity, new Christians, more experienced Christians, and very mature Christians. No, I think, in fact, he is addressing everyone and that's also the view of most commentators. It's as if when I'm preaching, I say, I want every child, every young adult, every older adult to listen to this truth. John is addressing everyone, those who had remained in his churches and had not deserted the cause of Christ. His writing to reassure them, to tell them they are right, that they are real. And he uses this lyrical formula because he intends for them to sing these words, which really sum up his entire epistle. So with that, John presents six rock-solid realities for born-again Christians, things that aren't true for anybody else on earth, but they are true for us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. First, he says, your sins have been forgiven. Verse 12 says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I think a lot of us have heard this so much in our church services and Bible studies that we may be taken a little bit more lightly than we should. We're living in a world that is overwhelmed with feelings of guilt, and we need to remember that. 
I thought it might be a good idea to research this in the popular press, and especially in newspapers and online advice columns. So here's what I found. I'll list for you some of the questions that showed up very frequently in newspaper and online advice columns. People wrote questions like this. Why do I feel guilty all the time? Why do I feel guilty for no reason? Why do successful women feel so guilty? I feel so guilty over giving someone COVID. What do I do? What do I do about the feelings of guilt that I have over my loved one's suicide? Why do I feel so guilty about spending money? One person said, sometimes I feel so guilty, I get nauseous. Another said, I feel guilty for having more money than my siblings. Another, I totally miss the fact that my teenager was struggling, and I feel so guilty. One lady wrote, Dear Amy, I feel so guilty that my current relationship is causing my former partner so much pain. What do I do? Another said, Why do we feel so guilty about using our vacation days? Or why do I feel so guilty for feeling good? One person wrote, Is it normal to feel so guilty that you want to die? Well, here's a couple of people, and specifically, Jennifer Lopez says that she struggles with guilt all the time because her kids are having a lot of trouble being in a famous family. And Carrie Underwood said that she struggles with guilt about leaving her kids at home while she's touring with concerts. I've read about children who struggle with survivor's guilt years after school shootings, and about soldiers who struggle with survivor's guilt for decades after combat or who suffer feelings of guilt about their combat experiences. Even lottery millionaires, some of them struggle with what is called winner's guilt. Well, what if there is one thing, and only one thing, that can wash away the reality of anything and everything that makes us feel guilty and that makes us guilty? John already has said in chapter 1, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. He has said in chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He's already said in chapter 2, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the atoning sacrifice for all sins. And now he says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I think that it's only a part of being human to feel guilty because we are guilty and there are so many things that can make us feel even more guilty sometimes than we are. But we must learn to tell ourselves that all of our guilt, every bit of it, has been covered by the blood of Christ. It's human to feel guilty, but it is Christian to overcome those feelings on the basis of the atonement. We have to tell ourselves I felt guilty longer than I should. I felt guilty longer than I can bear it. God no longer sees this guilt. He just sees the blood of Christ. So I'm going to take his view of it. I am guilty no longer. Paint companies have hundreds of shades of red that you can choose in painting a room. But there's only one red in all of the universe, strong enough and vivid enough and crimson enough and bright enough to cover our sins forever, and it's the blood-red sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
Second, not only have we been freed from all guilt, but we also have a priceless relationship with the one who accomplished this for us. We personally know Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12 and 13. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, this is the way that John identifies Jesus Christ. He said at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he went on to say the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. He was referring to Christ. He said the same thing at the beginning of this epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, we have heard, we have handled with our hands the word of life. He is referring to Christ, the one who is in the beginning. He says, we know him. I've been very fortunate to know the great gospel singer, Babby Mason. The last time I was with her, I took her hand, looked at her and said, I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus. She beamed back a warm smile because that's one of her signature songs. I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus, how I found a friend in him so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cares for me. Our sins have been forgiven, and we know him who has been from the beginning. But thirdly, here's a third rock-solid reality for genuine Christians. We have overcome the evil one. And John says this twice for emphasis. Let's look at the passage again. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And verse 14, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives within you. And again, he says, you have overcome the evil one. This is John's preferred title for the devil. For example, if you have your Bible open, turn over to 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. John wrote, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And look at 1 John 5, 18. We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Well, John got this title from Jesus. The title, The Evil One, for Satan, isn't found in the Old Testament. It's not found anywhere in the Bible until Jesus used it in his Sermon on the Mount. And after that, it became one of his primary titles for Satan. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, verse 37, to pray, lead us not into temptation, but literally, deliver us from the evil one. In Matthew 13, 19, he said, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. In his high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus prayed for all of us, saying, My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.16, In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. When John tells us here in the lyrics of his songs that we have overcome the evil one, he means that when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we are choosing to leave the dominion of Satan and live under the protection of him who defeated the evil one by his death on the cross and by his glorious resurrection. The devil and his demonic forces have infiltrated our world, our government, our entertainment, our schools, our politics, and our finances, but Jesus Christ defeated him, and we belong to Jesus Christ. John says this very plainly in the next chapter. In John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, he writes, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Going back to the great Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, let me remind you of verse 3. And though this world with devil's fill should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not at him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fail him. Someone asked me the other day what that little word was, the little word that will lead to Satan's downfall. Well, what Luther meant was that it will only take a single word from the lips of Jesus to consign the devil to the everlasting pit of hell. One breath from Jesus is vastly stronger than all of the powers of darkness. Fourth, Jesus tells his readers that true Christians have been forgiven of their sins, they know Jesus Christ, they have overcome the evil one, and they even have a relationship with Almighty God the Father, Yahweh, the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Verse 14 says, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. This again goes back to what John wrote in his gospel. His doubling down on everything that he said in the gospel of John. He is not retreating from his gospel in the face of criticism. He is doubling down on it. If you read the gospel of John and count all of the times the word father is used, you'll find over 100 occurrences in the 21 chapters and the vast majority of them refer to God. It begins in John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He said in the Gospel of John, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And He said in the same Gospel, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He said, if you have known me, you know the Father also. How can we get our minds around the fact that through Jesus Christ, we have a personal relationship, especially when we come to him in prayer, with the almighty, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, holy, loving, supreme, eternal creator of the universe, his immortal, invisible God, only wise and light and accessible, hid from our eyes, and yet he is our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. The fifth rock-solid truth 
is that when you are in Christ, you are strong. So let's go back to verse 12. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to your fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong. Now, if you're like me, you don't always feel very strong, do you? But our strength isn't in ourselves. Remember what Luther said in that song? Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. It's the Holy Spirit within us that makes us strong. He makes us able to withstand difficulties and able to advance the cause of Christ. I recently read one of the most gripping stories I've ever seen. The book was entitled In Peril on the Sea. It was written by Robert W. Bell, who, as a child, lived through the horrendous crisis he describes. The hero was his mother, missionary Ethel Bell. Ethel was a widow, but she served faithfully with her small children as missionaries in Africa. But in 1942, Axis powers overran the African colonies, and Ethel had to take her children and evacuate. They boarded a ship bound for home. But on the high seas, that ship was torpedoed by a German submarine, and it sank in less than two minutes. Ethel quickly gathered her children and ended up in an 8 by 10 raft with 19 people, including 14 sailors, a little raft with nearly 20 people in it. No one knew the ship had sunk outside of the people on that ship, but they knew and they also knew that sharks were constantly swimming around the raft. They saw them, the menacing sharks, constantly around the raft as they floated in the water. During the day, they were exposed to blazing sunlight, and at night they shivered. Little Robert was among them, and years later, when he wrote this story, he said, My mother could feel her energy draining away. Three nights without sleep, and the constant watching over the four children in her care had left her with no reserve. For the first time, she felt a wave of weakness, a flood tide of discouragement and self-pity, sweeping her away from her strong moorings and hope. She seemed so helpless, so outnumbered. How much longer could her faith hold out before it cracked and gave way to the realities of their circumstances? They were lost at sea. The men were threatening to fight among themselves. The captain had lost his strength and was dying. How long would it be before ultimate disaster struck and they all found themselves being devoured by sharks? But then he said, Bible verses began coming into Ethel's mind. She began to quote scripture aloud, including Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all of my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Robert wrote, Later that night, while the men moaned in restlessness and cursed their misfortune, Ethel Bell watched the moon passing among the silhouettes of clouds. It had been a more difficult day than any since the shipwreck, perhaps the most difficult she had ever faced. But in spite of her own discouragement, 
and seeming lack of faith, she had somehow been able to restore the faith for others, and out of her emptiness had come fullness. Out of her weakness had come strength. Well, she was able to be the captains that were of that raft, encourage the men for nearly three weeks before finally, at the very last moment, they were plucked from the sea and rescued. The Lord gave her strength for every day. And that leads us directly to the final rock-solid reality for the born-again Christian. We are strong when the Word of God lives or abides in us. Our strength comes because the Word of God is within us. Let's read the passage one last time, beginning with verse 12. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I'm writing to your fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The word lives is the same word that Jesus used in the upper room and is often translated abides. The word of God abides in us. In John 15 verse 7, Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask whatever you desire and it shall be done for you. When we abide in Christ, we want his words to abide in us. That requires simple Bible study. And it has helped, if I may say so, with memorization of Scripture. On that raft, Ethel didn't have a Bible. The ship had sunk in five minutes before anybody could gather anything, but she had vast portions of God's Word in her mind, and that became her Bible. Kenneth Bearding is a professor at Talbot School of Theology. He has an excellent article on how to memorize Scripture. He said he learned this from his favorite professor, who was 90 years old at the time that uh, Kenneth was taking classes from him. And he said, this is what it is. It's simply a matter of selecting the portion of Scripture that you want to learn and saying it out loud and with expression 50 or more times over a period of some days. You don't really have to try to memorize it as such. You just keep reading it aloud with expression day after day until one day you discover that you know it. Right now, I'm doing that with the passage here in 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. I've been saying that verse several times a day with expression out loud, and I'm beginning to learn it. Well, what John is saying here is that the world may try to intimidate us, to rattle us, we may have deserters and deconstructionists and those who sound virtuous by their false piety or false philosophies or dangerous ideas, but don't be rattled by them. Just be rock solid because, and you can turn this into a little song too if you want to, your sins have been forgiven. You know the Lord Jesus Christ. You have overcome the evil one and you know the Father. You are strong, and the Word of God abides in you. Well, thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. And remember to check out these two books with the same title, Calm Your Anxiety. The subtitle of the trade book is Winning the Fight Against Worry, and the sub 
title of the companion volume is 60 Biblical Quotes for Better Mental Health. And speaking of scripture memory, check out my book, 100 Bible Verses Everyone Should Know by Heart. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. Audio editing and engineering is done by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com. They may be of great use to teachers and preachers in that form. And on that website, you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And may God be with you until we meet again.